Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Two Changes. Hello. Hope everybody's doing well. Going to this crazy, hectic week of thanks and givings. Um, I'm sure everybody's got a huge dysfunctional family to feed, and it's going to be awesome all around. So much food to eat. Oh, I'm already full. I'm tired already. But in the spirit of Thanksgiving, our sponsor putt of the week, which will go up on our Facebook shortly, is a boy named Sue. I wanted to take him home super bad, but he is very high energy, loves pets. Um, he's a two-year-old mixed breed who is fixed. He's been at the shelter since July of this year. It's believed he's friendly with other dogs as he came to the shelter with another dog as a stray. He was super friendly and loving. Again, I wanted to take him home. He so was bad. so cute. Oh my God, so uh, cute. Not gonna lie, Loki changed his name, but he's just super, super cute. Uh, butt wiggles all day long. Loves to be cuddled and pet. He loves playing with toys and giving kisses. And he is a very friendly and playful spirit. Um, again, like I said, I want to take him home, but my dog is like six, go on 13, plays on her terms, otherwise sleeps 16 hours a day. I think if you couldn't adopt him, he would make an absolute wonderful foster. And I can probably guarantee that he'd be a foster fail because you wouldn't want to take him back. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Hands down. Um, I definitely think if you're somebody who lives a fast-paced lifestyle and you're on the go or like active, enjoy being outdoors, anything like that, he would be a perfect fit for your family because like I said, he's a young dog and he is super energetic. Again, once the post goes up on Facebook, share, tag a couple of your friends, comment done, let us know you'll be put into win our raffle, which just about everything is in the basket and ready to go. Aside from the shirts, again, the shirts are gonna be depending on your size. So whoever wins will get your size, the shirts will follow, and then we'll get the basket delivered to you. So, Get on that because we're gonna be going live here at the end of the month to draw a winner. And don't forget that if you want, you can go back to the very first post we made. You can like, share, tag two friends, comment done. You'll get entered. That yep. gets you four entries for the entire month. If you donate any dollar amount, that'll get you three additional entries. And then if you buy something from their wish list or you just want to go and buy dog food and drop it off, drop our name. And that gets you an additional two entries. Exactly. And I mean, we have added a donate uh, button on the bottom of a couple of our posts. So anywhere you see any of our posts with an internal donate feed, um, just click there and donate. We've raised $25 that way. Um, and we've raised around $70, $75 outside of that in cash donations from uh, just peddling our wares. People just peddling them. To people that want to buy stuff. Yeah, we have stickers now too. All kinds of stickers. Yeah, we have a bunch of paw prints. I've got a bunch of decals because Loki have a cricket that we played a lot of money for that I never use. So we're just trying to raise some money. And also, if you want to see us, me, Emily, the other part of the Jane Does, has been going out to the shelter on Saturdays and trying to volunteer. All you have to do is sign a waiver form. They'll let you walk dogs. Play with cats, which I'm gonna let you do that anyway. 
but go volunteer, help them out. They got a crap ton of dogs that need walked. And I was somehow coerced by two of them to jog, and I am not doing a like couch to 5K program, but <laughs> yeah, they wanted to jog, so that's what we did. My lungs burned, and I thought I was gonna die. Super energetic, loving dogs, help the shelter out. Anyways, getting into this episode, <clears throat> it's a rough one. I'm going to give you a disclaimer now. It involves, I mean, from start to finish, it involves physical um, abuse, um, sexual abuse of a child uh, that ultimately leads to her death. So, if you're fine, I mean, not that if you're fine with that, but like if you're okay listening to that, I just want to let you know that that's what this episode is going to be about from start to finish. With that being said, the question of the week is, did your parents work for a traveling carnival and left you with a woman named Gertrude for $20 a week to care for you and your sister that had polio, but then she killed you? Let's talk about it. This podcast contains some adult language, graphic descriptions of crime scenes, sexual assault, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. So, the star of today's episode is Sylvia Likens. She was born January 3rd, 1949, and she was the third child of Lester and Elizabeth Likens. She had four other siblings, which, what are the odds, that it included an older set of twins, Diana and Daniel, and a younger set of twins, Jenny and Benny. So, she was kind of just wedged in the middle as the only one that didn't come with a twin. I like the play on names there. That's pretty sweet. (laughs) Right? Just change them a little bit and you guys are male and female names. It works. So in January of 1965, she had just celebrated her 16th birthday. Um, she loved roller skating and the Beatles. She had been described as a friendly, confident, and lively girl with long, wavy, light brown hair that went just below her shoulders. And her friends called her Cookie, which is a cute little nickname. That is a cute little nickname. <laughs> Sylvia took care of her little sister, Jenny, which is one of the younger set of twins, uh, because she had a limp leg due to polio. She occasionally earned spending money by babysitting, running errands, or performing ironing chores for friends and neighbors, and would spend the money she made on trips to the skating rink with Jenny. Sylvia would fasten one skate to Jenny's sturdy foot and hold her hand so she could skate like the other kids. So, So sweet. Super sweet. Lester and Elizabeth's marriage was, unfortunately, unstable. They often sold candy, beer, and soda at carnival stands around Indiana throughout the summer, moving frequently and regularly experiencing severe financial difficulties. 
The boys regularly helped their parents when they traveled, but the girls couldn't out of fear for their safety and education. So Sylvia and Jenny were sent to live with a family of Paula and Stephanie Benazuski. Benazuski. is the best way I know how to pronounce the last name. (laughs) Benazuski. All right, cool. Uh, Yeah, so Sylvia and Jenny were sent to live with the family of Paula and Stephanie Benazuski since they got along so well. The girls met at Arsenal Technical High School. Yeah, and if you're wondering, like, how they were just sent to live, well, the dad, Lester, ended up working up an agreement with Stephanie and Paula's mother, Gertrude, to pay $20 a week for their board and care. Now, I know what you're thinking, like, oh my god, $20 a week. In the 60s, that was probably adequate, and since they didn't have, like, the steadiest form of income since they were working for a traveling carnival, $20 is probably all they could afford. Um, anyways, Gertrude promised to care for the girls as if they were her own, and the girls moved into the Banaszewski home in July 1965, with Lester and Elizabeth saying that they would return to get them in November after traveling the East Coast for the carnival. Now we want to give you some background information on good old Gertie here. So she was born September 19, 1928. She dropped out of high school at age 16 to marry 18-year-old John Stefan Benazuski, and together they had four children, Paula, John, Stephanie, and Marie. John became physically violent towards Gertrude, and they were divorced after 10 years together. Now, shortly after she divorced John, she married Edward Guthrie. He turned out to be abusive as well, and they were divorced within months. Gertrude then went back to John, and they were remarried, had two more children, Shirley and James, and then they divorced for the second time. Lastly, Gertrude met Dennis Lee Wright, and together they had one son, Dennis Jr., in 1965. They never got married, thank God, but he was also physically abusive towards her, and he ended up abandoning her and Dennis Jr. She filed a paternity suit against them, but never saw a penny. So altogether, Gertrude's happy little family consisted of herself and seven children. This woman is just a <laughs> magnet for abusive men. Like, yeah, I want to see yes. pictures of them. Like, did she have a type? Like, did they all look similar? Because that's just oh, girl. When I find... why would you remarry somebody? Uh, I mean, after they beat your ass. Listen, I I had an aunt who married my dad's brother. They met in like the military, and they got married, and then they divorced, and. After she got out, she looked him up, and they got remarried, and they were together until he died. Okay, but was she getting her ass beat? I mean, no, like, she wasn't getting beat, but, like, he was just kind of like, meh. So, anyways, Gertrude is very Yeah, Gertrude, I mean, listen, when I post the pictures to our Facebook page, you're going to see, like, she looking rough. Oh, Gertie was rough. Mm. Rough looking. Sad. So anyways, <laughs> after all of this troublesome life she's experienced, she became a chain smoker. Suffering from depression due to the stress of three failed marriages, a recent failed relationship, and a single mom of seven living in poverty at 3850 East New York Street in Indianapolis, Indiana. Her rent was $55 a month 
Which, shit, I wish stuff costed that much nowadays. Yeah, you can't even get an apartment that wouldn't contain seven children and one adult for $55. Hell no. She occasionally performed odd jobs for neighbors and acquaintances, such as sewing or cleaning in order to earn money. After taking in Sylvia and Jenny, she was making an additional $20 per week, as agreed upon with Sylvia and Jenny's father, but it was still two more children to care for. Yup. And initially, the Benazowski family, Benazowski family treated Sylvia and Jenny kindly, as Gertrude had promised Lester. The Likens and Benazowski girls spent time singing popular songs and gossiping about boys. So, at this given time, everything's hunky-dory. It's going good. Yeah, it's like a slumber party. It's just a good old time. Sylvia's 16. She just turned 16. You know, six months prior to moving in with them. Uh, she met two other girls around her age. So, I could just imagine all of them, like, powwowing around, singing the Beatles, and just being typical teenage girls. Yeah. But the Banaszewski home was the kind of neighborhood home that children would come and go from as they pleased. It was kind of a madhouse. They could get away with things there that their parents wouldn't allow, like smoking, drinking, and even raunchy sex talk. What? Never. Um, Gertrude continued to become pregnant, but each pregnancy following her last child, Dennis Jr.'s, ended in miscarriages. In total, she was pregnant six additional times. And each one was a miscarriage. So, at this point, she was tired, and she looked 62 years old, even though she was only 31. So, keep this in mind. Oh, my Lanta. She was only 31 and had seven children, people. This poor woman. Yes. And to add her already, like, overflowing full play, her 17-year-old daughter, Paula, was pregnant by a married man. So, she's got seven of her own. Sylvia and Jenny, and now her daughter's pregnant. That's a household of nine people, no, ten people, plus one on the way. I just, this poor woman, she done been, like, drugged through hell and battered to shit, and she's just there. Oh, yeah. Chain-smoking her life away. Gotta get rid of that stress. She looked like she was real hard to put up wet when you see the pictures of her. Whew. So, Sylvia and Jenny kind of had to squeeze into a shared bedroom with Marie, Shirley, and Jimmy. And the room only had one mattress that was on the floor. And between the five children that shared that bedroom, they would take turns sleeping there. So, you can tell, number one, it's a madhouse. They can do whatever they want. They run the house. And there's no accommodations that can be made for her children, much less... Sylvia and Jenny that she took in and promised to care for. At this point, this house just sounds like a damn trap house. Mm-hmm. Just people in and out. Shit's probably a fucking mess. She got baby's kids in that house. <laughs> Everybody. <clears throat> so, Lester nor Elizabeth, neither one ever stepped foot into Gertrude's home. Mm-hmm. And I can guarantee you that if they did, none of this probably would have happened. I mean, I would like to think that too, but on the other side of the same coin, if they're traveling so often, they have no, like, set residence or any kind of structure to offer the girls either. So, it almost makes me wonder if the girls would have stayed with them, if the outcome would have been the same. 
um, in terms of their safety. If they were worried, you yeah, know, yeah. I get leaving them behind, but at the same time, they just had no idea who they were leaving them with. Well, if they had went into the home, they would have noticed that there weren't enough beds or space for their girls there. The house had a hot plate where the stove should have been. Point blank period, Gertrude was in no position to take care of Sylvia or Jenny, much less her own children. Yeah. Can I get an amen? That is fucking true. Gertrude was suffering for money. Without the weekly $20 that she received from Lester, she had no way to feed all the children and make rent. She was glad Lester paid $20 up front, but when the future payments started arriving late, or not at all, she became enraged. So you got this 60-year-old-looking, 31-year-old woman just fiending for her money. Mm-hmm. She's just trying to make ends meet. She get, and she's trying to support a smoking addiction, supporting these kids, mm-hmm. pay for the house. <clears throat> she got a lot going on for her. That's not working out for her. Oh, yeah. Woo. Yeah. So, Sylvia and Jenny became the subjects of Gertrude's disdain. After the first late, late, after the first late payment, she dragged Jenny upstairs and whipped her with a leather belt. And she would say things like, well, I took care of you two bitches for a week for nothing. The money would arrive in the mail the next day. And this happened, you know, after the first spanking. And then Lester and Elizabeth would come a few days later and give Gertrude another advance payment. Sylvia and Jenny wouldn't say anything to them. Were they even getting to see their parents? They would. When they would come in and make payments up front, they would get to visit for a little bit. But it wasn't, you know, they never stepped foot in the home. So it was always like standing on the stoop or visiting outside the home. It was never seeing them in there and... At this point, this is just spanking. You guys, I'm telling you right now, this episode's about to get a lot worse. This is just spanking with a leather belt. I don't know about you. It is going to escalate. Let's talk about this this little spanking for a minute, okay? I never died. Well, no, that's not my I'm point. okay. <laughs> I was going to say, if that's where this is going. But, like, they're at that age where teenagers are rebellious. They're mm-hmm. learning to stand up for themselves. They're learning mm-hmm. to fight for themselves. Why the hell didn't they say something? Mm-hmm. Like, what the heck is wrong with them? Well, I mean, I mean, clearly there's it's probably a lot going on. Yeah, they're thrown into this unfamiliar environment at first. It's, like I said, it seems like a slumber party. They're all teenagers. But then when you see this ugly side of somebody... You know, even at 16, you could still be torn between what should I say, what shouldn't I say. At the end of the day, I'm still going to be left here. Will my parents believe me? What will Gertrude say if I do tell them? This is true. You know, because at at the end of the day, their parents were still trying to make money. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. But, again... Disclaimer, it's going to get worse very quickly. Um, When Gertrude learned that Sylvia was recycling pop bottles for extra cash, which at 16 I'd probably do the same thing if you're trying to get you some extra money for food, um, she beat her with a quarter-inch wooden paddle. 
she hit her repeatedly across the back and head. When she became weak due to chronic bronchitis, she handed the paddle over to Paula. So this is Gertrude getting sick. Well, yeah, because she's chain-smoking. Yeah, she's losing her strength. She hands the paddle to her 17-year-old daughter, Paula, to dish out the beatings. Um, the abuse continued and increased in frequency and severity. Gertrude may have felt sorry for Jenny due to her fragility with the whole polio situation going on. Because by August, so just a month later, they moved in in July, so a month later, uh, Gertrude started to concentrate her abuse on Sylvia solely. And Sylvia admitted she had a boyfriend living in California. Gertrude became so disgusted and so did her daughter Paula. Uh-huh. So now Paula's pretty much like being strung along with all of this. Yep, yeah, Paula's heavily involved at this point. They repeatedly kicked Sylvia in her vaginal area after accusing her of being pregnant. Mm-hmm. But, like, mm-hmm. she never left to go see homeboy in California, mm-hmm. if it was even a real boyfriend. Right. Yep. Not only was she subjected to beatings, but Gertrude also started abusing Sylvia by withholding food. Sylvia would forage for food in dumpsters. Once Gertrude caught her digging for food... And she, Paula, and a neighborhood child forced her to eat a hot dog loaded with tons of condiments and spices. When Sylvia threw up, they made her eat her own vomit. Yeah, and let's back this up for a second. She, meaning Gertrude, Paula, and a neighborhood kid. A neighborhood kid that is a no-name nobody was also involved in watching this poor girl eat until she threw up. And then was made to eat her own vomit. And I'm telling you people, it gets worse. I just, just the thought, like, I can't even imagine yeah. that. Like, I just don't the even. the smell gets me. Oh, yeah. Like, Mm-mm. no, Mm-mm. no. So, Jenny and Sylvia returned to school, which pleased Lester, but this didn't make things any easier. Gertrude accused Sylvia of spreading rumors that Paula and Stephanie were prostitutes. She scolded the girls in front of her children and their friends. Stephanie's boyfriend, Coy Hubbard, and I include this name for very specific reasons, Coy Hubbard attacked Sylvia in response. Stephanie snickered as her mother taunted Sylvia by calling her filthy names. And once Gertrude accused Sylvia of stealing gym clothes and his punishment, she burnt her fingertips with a lip match while screaming that she hated her and how she was ruining her life. So again, another person brought in to attack Sylvia and just dish out beatings is Stephanie's boyfriend, Coy. And again, I included his name for very specific reasons because, spoiler alert, at the end of this episode, he is going to be indicted. So that's why his name is I just, I mean, at this point, <laughs> this crazy-ass lady, I mean, is not obviously being logical at all because, you know, if, if you get to a point where you're like, hey, I, I'm not making it. I'm not making ends meet. I can't take care of your kids right now. She should have fucking said something to... Just said, hey, Lester, hey, Elizabeth, I can't financially do this. My health is declining. I have seven kids of my own. Can you please come pick up your girls and make arrangements elsewhere? 
$20, I think at the end of the day, was not going to make or break this woman. No, like, she is just... I think there was some part of her that is enjoying it. Well, probably, because she probably has, you know, built up rage and anger from where she was abused. And yeah. so now she has the ability to be the abuser in this situation Ooh. and get out all those anger and feelings of her shitty-ass life that she experienced. Right, because her abuse did start at 16 when she got married to John Stefan Banaszewski. And then yep. it was kind of all downhill from there. Could be. Very possible. Mm-hmm. So, in September of 1965, Jenny and Sylvia encountered their older sister, Diana, at a local park. They told her about the abuse they were enduring and that Sylvia was being specifically targeted for physically for physical abuse almost always for things that she had neither said nor done neither mentioned the actual address where they were living and initially diana believed her sisters must be exaggerating the scope of their mistreatment shortly after this incident the father of a neighborhood boy phoned arsenal technical high school to anonymously report that a girl with open sores across her entire body was living at the benazuski household Sylvia had not attended school for several days, and a school nurse visited the home to investigate. Although Gertrude claimed to the nurse that she had run away from her home the previous week and that she was unaware of her whereabouts. Uh She said that Sylvia was, quote, out of control and that her open sores were a result of her refusal to maintain decent personal hygiene. The school made no further investigations in relation to Sylvia's welfare. Uh And it doesn't stop there. Okay, because the immediate neighbors of the Banaszewski family were a middle-aged couple and both initially viewed Gertrude as an ideal caregiver and they had both visited the residence on a couple of occasions while Jenny and Sylvia were there. But on both occasions, they witnessed Paula physically abusing Sylvia. They observed Sylvia to be extremely meek and somewhat zombified in nature. Nonetheless, they never reported evident mistreatment to the authorities. So the school fails her, and the neighbors fail her, even though they specifically witnessed this. Nothing was done. And that's bad, hearing that about school. Mm Mm-hmm. Because for a lot of people, school is where they get the majority of their meals. That's where they get things that they don't get at home. And then for that whole entire school system to fail for them, when that's probably their only rock in life... Oh, exactly. It's shitty. That's why we have coat closets at schools now, because when kids show up dirty, they have clean clothes so they don't have to be made fun of for that day because of that. They have programs that make, you know, uh, families that are low income and they know are struggling. They make sure that these kids have food throughout the summer and on breaks. Yep. School is, like you said, it's a rock for these kids and for that to be taken away or for... uh, reports to not be taken seriously or not followed through on is it's just a failure it is so the abuse continued and the subject eventually turned to sylvia's alleged sexual activity which again they've already you know beat her for saying that she was pregnant when she wasn't um sylvia would all what i don't know what just happened (laughs) Gertrude would say things like, you should never do anything with a boy until you're married. And Sylvia would say that she hadn't done anything, and this just only made Gertrude even more angry. She would tell her um, 
you know, continuously that you shouldn't do things until you're ready or until you're married. And she would, again, continuously kick Sylvia's pubic area uh, repeatedly. But doing this did not completely satisfy Gertrude. Um, she ended up making her strip naked and insert a glass cola bottle into her vagina while she, her children, and I'm sure neighborhood children watched and laughed because at this point she, she created a carnival herself. Um, it's everybody make fun of Sylvia, let's humiliate her, assault her, and point and laugh. And it's all okay because nothing's going to happen to you in my little trap house of wonders. Right. Right. At the beginning of October of 1965, Diana discovered that her sisters were temporarily staying at the Benazuski's residence. She visited the home in an attempt to initiate regular contact, but Gertrude refused entrance to her property, stating that she had received permission from their parents not to allow either girl to see her. She ordered Diana off of her property, and approximately two weeks later, Diana saw Jenny by chance near the home and asked about Sylvia, and Jenny told her, I can't tell you or I'll get into trouble. Which, again, should have prompted the older sister at this point to do something. Anything. Anything would have been better than nothing. Lester and Elizabeth checked on Sylvia and Jenny on October 5th, 1965. Again, they kept their secret, afraid of making it worse. Which, I don't understand at this point, if she is covered in sores and she's looking malnourished and all these things, how How do the parents not notice? Yeah, how do you not notice that your kid looks zombified? Yeah. And like death? Yeah. But when Lester and Elizabeth would leave, Gertrude would say, What are you going to do now, Sylvia? Now they're gone. Gertrude banned the girls from seeing their sister Diana and alienated them from anyone who cared for them. Paula once held the door open and dared Sylvia to get away and stay away, knowing that she had nowhere to go. Which just makes my heart drop and it makes me so sad. And it also makes you wonder, like, if she actually did leave the house. Mm-hmm. All them little, all them little baby kids and all of Gertrude's family probably would have hunted her ass down. Yeah. Brought her back and beat the living piss out of her. Yeah. Yeah, because again, people, it gets worse. It continues to escalate. Um, so, Sylvia's last day of school was on October 6, 1965, the day after her parents' last visit. Uh, Gertrude told the school that Sylvia had no interest in going and pretended to be concerned, when in reality, Gertrude had banned her to the cold basement of the home. Stephanie's boyfriend, Coy, became one of Sylvia's primary attackers. He enjoyed body slamming her forcefully onto the basement floor and tying her up for days at Gertrude's encouragement. Kids from the school even visited the home and participated in her torture. Gertrude was the ringleader and she coached them step by step. Nothing was off limits. Some kids put cigarettes out on her skin to hear her cry. Gertrude would bathe her in scalding hot water until her skin blistered. And Paula even once beat Sylvia's face until she broke her wrist. And while the doctor put a cast on her arm, she bragged exactly about how she broke it. And then when she got home, she continued to beat Sylvia with her cast. Um, It's awful. I just, you know, I like to think that there's a lot of strength in a community 
you know, if something's going on, you know, the community would stand up mm-hmm. against what's going on. But in this case, this entire little fucking community is just giving this poor girl who has nothing to do with any of them mm-hmm. fucking hell for no reason. All because Gertrude has allowed this to continue for so fucking long. Right. And I mean, but who even knows if these other children's parents and families know about it? You know, because they can do things over there that they can't do at their house. So, I don't know. I don't know. This is insane. Absolutely insane. Gertrude used a needle to carve the letter I into Sylvia's abdomen. Unable to finish the full statement, she encouraged neighborhood kid Richard Hobbs to finish it to say, I am a prostitute and proud of it. Gertrude helped him spell prostitute. So, I mean, at least this little tattoo wasn't going to say no regrets or something. She Uh made sure the shit said what it should say. And at Gertrude's request, Richard heated a metal hook and attempted to brand the letter S on Sylvia's chest, but instead branded her with a number three. Gertrude taunted Sylvia, saying, What are you going to do now? You can't get married now. Sylvia whimpered, I guess there's nothing I can do. Which, it, this whole thing is just, it blows my mind that anybody could do this to a child. What Much less get other kids involved. And that's what blows my mind, is how all these people, all these kids, are just like, oh yeah, I want to do that. Like, oh, Miss Gertrude, will you let me do this? Like... What the fuck is wrong with you? I would like to think, like, even me, like, at 16, I think you have a pretty good grasp of what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. And doing this to somebody else and witnessing other people doing it is so far, like, separated from wrong. It's just evil. It's just evil. And it makes you wonder, though, like, was Gertrude, like threatening these other kids that if they didn't do this to her then she would do the same thing to them Mm -hmm. i mean it's i mean it's hard to say but to me it sounds like they're just willy-nilly i want to know what it's like to torture somebody yeah little sick sadistic fucks it's it's just awful so stephanie's boyfriend coy would then you know after everybody was done with her and had their turn she would or he would tie sylvia back up in the basement and he would, again, just repeatedly slam her little body into the wall over and over. Um, and Gertrude had finally broken Sylvia's spirit. And she would tell her sister Jenny, I know you don't want me to die, but I'm going to die, I can tell. And these beatings continued and they eventually made Sylvia incontinent. And she also started to lose control of her limbs. And Gertrude knew that Sylvia was taking a turn for the worse. So she allowed her to sleep on the mattress in the upstairs bedroom. Like, bitch, it's too late now to be fucking nice. She finally, yeah, she finally let her come upstairs. Um, She gave her a lukewarm bath, and she sent her right back down to the basement and forced her to write a letter that said, To Mr. and Mrs. Likens, I went with a gang of boys in the middle of the night, and they said that they would pay me if I would give them something. So I got in the car, and they got all what they, they all got what they wanted. And when they got finished, they beat me up and left sores on my face and all over my body. And they also put on my, put on my stomach, I am a prostitute and proud of it. 
I have done just about everything that I could do just to make Gertie mad and cost Gertie more money than she's got. I've tore up a new mattress and peed on it. I've also cost Gertie doctor bills that she really can't pay and made Gertie a nervous wreck and all her kids. What a sick bitch. I think if anybody's a nervous wreck, it's obviously Sylvia. I mean, yeah, and and it's this is the also part that kind of sucks. Like, her parents, I mean, it sounds like they were kind of in and out of her life growing up due to being a part of a carnival. So, mm-hmm. looking at this, are they going to say, hmm, that doesn't really sound like my little girl? Or are they going to say, eh, it's possible. Right. That's that's another thing that's sad. Yeah. It's, it's sad because, like, from the get, there's no consistency. There's no kind of structure. And it seems like from the very beginning, kids like Sylvia and Jenny were set up to fall through the cracks and to just go unnoticed. And it's not fair. Yeah, because, I mean, it sounds like the Lycans prefer the boys over the girls. Well, I, mean, I guess they thought in their head the boys would be able to fend for themselves more adequately and they would prefer their little girls go and get education and the boys could do the grunt work. I mean, yeah. Which, I mean, I get that that's the mindset of the times anyway. So. Yeah, it is. <sighs> so, that night, Sylvia heard Gertrude and her children making plans to dump her in a nearby wooded area known as Jimmy's Forest and simply leave her there to die. Sylvia tried to run, but Gertrude caught her, dragging her back inside and attempted to feed her toast. Sylvia didn't have the strength to eat. Gertrude struck her... La, 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 la. Gertrude struck her face with a curtain rod, and her son John then returned her to the basement. John tied Sylvia's wrists to the basement railing, with her toes barely touching the ground. Gertrude shoved crackers into Sylvia's dry mouth, and she told her that she wasn't hungry and suggested she fed them to the dog. Gertrude punched her in her stomach. John rubbed urine and feces from Dennis Jr.'s diaper into her mouth before giving her a cup half filled with water, saying that that was all she would receive for the remainder of the day. So you have Sylvia who is completely exhausted, no strength, and these people had just one little blink of kindness to let her sleep on a mattress Mm -hmm. to only go back to beating and being so cruel to her. Yep. Ugh. Yep, she's too weak to do anything. Um, On October 25th, 1965, Gertrude, Cody, and John beat Sylvia until she lost consciousness after Gertrude stomped on her head. When she came to, she gathered up enough strength to bang on the basement floor and the walls, hoping someone would hear and come to help her. No one came. One immediate neighbor of the Banazuskis would later inform police that she had heard the desperate commotion and that she had identified the sources coming from the basement at 3850 East New York Street, but since the noise suddenly stopped around 3 a.m., she decided not to call the cops about the disturbance. And on the morning of October 26, 1965, Gertrude attempted to feed Sylvia a donut and a glass of milk. But as we stated before, she had started to lose control of her limbs too, and she was unable to correctly get the glass up to her lips. Gertrude threw her to the floor in frustration and had her return to the basement. She again desperately attempted to to leave, but she collapsed before she could even reach the stairs. Stephanie, and this is like 
not that this forgives everything, but this is kind of when Stephanie started to like feel really bad for Sylvia. So in an act of kindness, she decided to bathe Sylvia, but she stopped breathing before she could even be brought upstairs to the bathtub. Stephanie tried to revive her with CPR, but she was unsuccessful. Gertrude repeatedly shouted that she wasn't dead and that she was simply faking it, and she hit her in the face twice with a book to prove that she was. Sylvia didn't move. They placed her broken body back on a mattress and called the cops. When they arrived, Gertrude handed the police Sylvia's letter that she had forced her to write previously. She told them that Sylvia had ran away, and when she returned, she was injured and clutching this letter. Gertrude acted like she was full of grief and said she was trying to quote-unquote doctor Sylvia. Clutching a Bible, Paula glanced in Jenny's direction and calmly stated, quote, If you want to live with us, Jenny, we'll treat you like our own sister. The police asked Jenny what happened, and she repeated what Gertrude had said, but then added, if you get me out of here, I will tell you everything. Good for Jenny for standing up for that. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure that probably took so much bravery for her. I just got chill bumps. <laughs> Deputy Coroner Arthur Keeble noted that Sylvia's lips were practically chewed through, partially severing sections of them from her face. She had suffered in excess of 150 separate wounds across her entire body, in addition to being extremely, extremely, <laughs> extremely emaciated. Her injuries included burns, severe bruising, and extensive muscle and nerve damage. Her vaginal cavity was almost swollen shut, although an examination of the canal determined that her hymen was still intact, proving she was still a virgin. All 10 of her fingernails were bent backwards and broken. Her wounds were her wounds were all in different stages of healing, suggesting ongoing trauma. The cause of death was a subdural hematoma due to her receiving a severe blow to her right temple. Both the shock she had suffered due to the severe and prolonged damage inflicted to her skin, severe malnutrition, were listed as contributory factors to her death. Rigor mortis had fully developed at the time of the discovery of her body, indicating she may have been dead for up to eight hours before she was found. Which means they let her lay there. For eight hours before they were like, hmm, I guess we better call the cops. Like, let's make sure all of our stories are straight. Right, but let's keep in mind here, they probably had zero remorse that she was even dead. At this point, they were panicking because they wanted to make sure that they got away with them. Yeah, and they wanted all the stories to be the same. They wanted to appear as if they were good little Christian people. Just, mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. fuckers. So, Sylvia's funeral was held at the Russell and Hitch Funeral Home in Lebanon on the afternoon of October 29, 1965. More than 100 people were in attendance. Her gray casket remained open throughout the ceremony with a portrait of her taken prior taken prior to her terrible abuse and death adorning her coffin. The reverend stated in his eulogy that, quote, we all have our time of passing, but we won't suffer like our little sister suffered during the last days of her life. She was laid to rest at Oak Hill Cemetery and her headstone is inscribed with the words, our darling daughter. And thus we move forward with indictments and 
trial that followed. But they still like want to get what they fucking deserve. No, no, no. And we'll get to that too. Um, so two months later, on December 30th, 1965, Gertrude was convicted of first degree murder along with Paula and John. Both Good. of those were children. Richard and Coy, two neighborhood kids that were involved, were also indicted. All were charged with having repeatedly struck, beaten, kicked, and otherwise inflicting an exorbitant amount of fatal injuries to Sylvia with premeditated malice. Stephanie chose to waiver her to waiver. <laughs> Stephanie chose to waive her immunity from any potential prosecution and agreed to testify against her family and any other individuals charged with abusing and murdering Sylvia. Now, with that being said, I don't. None of my research showed that Stephanie herself, uh, you know, physically did anything to Sylvia in any way. I could be wrong. Don't come at me. But, but she still she, let it happen. She still watched it happen. And she and encouraged. She, and she encouraged it. Yeah. But, I mean, good for her for, like, I will testify against all these motherfuckers. So. Right. <clears throat> the trial began April 18th, 1966. The prosecution announced their intentions to seek the death penalty for all five defendants. So, yes. They also successfully argued that all the defendants should be tried together as they were ultimately charged with acting together in their collective crimes against Sylvia. Hell yes, again. The attorneys for Richard Coy, Paula, and John claimed that they had been pressured into participating in Sylvia's abuse and torture by Gertrude, while Gertrude herself chose to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. The bitch had the nerve. Boo. Yeah. Get out of here. No. Get out of here. Jenny testified against all five, stating that each had repeatedly and extensively both physically and emotionally abused her sister, adding that Sylvia had done nothing to provoke the assaults and that, that there was no truth in either the rumors she had been falsely accused of spreading or the slurs each had made against her character. Jenny stated the abuse her sister and herself endured began around two weeks after they had begun to live in the Benazuski household and that the abuse her sister was forced to endure escalated. Yeah. Gertrude herself testified in her own defense and denied any responsibility for Sylvia's prolonged abuse and ultimate death, claiming her children and the other children within her neighborhood must have committed the acts within her home, which she described as being such a madhouse. She also added that she had been too preoccupied by her own ill health and depression to control her children. She denied any knowledge of Sylvia having ever endured any beating, scalding, branding, or burning within her home. The trial of the five defendants lasted 17 days before the jury was released to consider its verdict. On May 19, 1966, after deliberating for eight hours, the panel of eight men and four women found Gertrude guilty of first-degree murder, recommending a sentence of life imprisonment. Paula was found guilty of second-degree murder, and Richard, Coy, and John were found guilty of manslaughter. Upon hearing the verdicts, Gertrude and her children burst into tears and attempted to console each other, but Richard and Coy remained kind of expressionless. First of all, this mm. woman, mm-hmm. she's just lost her damn mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, good on you, Jerry, for seeing through the lies. But it gets worse. Oh. It gets worse. So, on May 25th, 1966, 
Gertrude and Paula were formally sentenced to life imprisonment. And the same day, Richard, Coy, and John each received sentences of 2 to 21 years to be served in the Indiana Reformatory. In September of 1970, the Indiana Supreme Court reversed the convictions of Gertrude and Paula on the basis that the judge had denied repeatedly submitted notions by their defense counsel at their original trial for both a change of venue and separate trials. So they were pushing for two separate trials and a change of venue. So like where the crime took place, they did not want their trial to be held in that same county because they knew media coverage and everything else was going to influence the verdict given back by people that live in that county. So, well, hold on. Hold on. Let me touch base on this little little afraid of the media mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. influence verdict. You can't do that. I just serve jury duty. Mm-hmm. You cannot watch, listen, talk, nothing. Or I mean, you're pretty much true. like banned as a juror. So yeah, like, I'm trying to say that this is an ongoing case, but media coverage before selection, yeah, you're gonna know about the case. You're that's gonna... not how it works. If you have heard about it, you know about it, whatever, you don't get selected as a juror. You have to remain completely probably not in the sixties though. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe not. But you know what I mean? My point is that they they reach in. They right. are reaching. Well, I get, like, the change of venue because, you know, I'm not advocating for them to get separate trials or nothing else like that. Um, you know, I get that that would be denied uh, for separate trials. They, they were what we would call co-defendants. They were in that together. They did it together. That's how it shakes out. Um a change of venue, that's really just to get it out of the county and the area where it happened. That's You see that a lot in trials, too. But at the end of the day, screw her. She's dead anyway. Gladly. Rest in distress. Old Gertie. Hate you. <laughs> um, but ultimately, Gertrude was released from prison on December 4th, 1985 on parole and changed her name to Nadine Von Fossum, a combination of her middle name and maiden name and described herself as a devout Christian. She ended up relocating to Iowa, and still, she never fully accepted responsibility for being the ultimate player in Sylvia's torment and death, saying, quote, I'm not sure what role I had in Sylvia's death because I was on drugs. I never really knew her. I take full responsibility for whatever happened to Sylvia, end quote. But she says she didn't really know her and that she didn't have a part because she was on drugs makes no sense. No. The whole statement that she just tried to play exactly. off makes no sense. It's stupid. Gertrude lived in relative obscurity in Laurel, Iowa until she died due to lung cancer, chain smoking heifer on June 6th, uh, June 16th, rather, 1990. She was 61. So it's funny because she was 30 and looked 60 and she died in her 60s because she was chain smoking. I wonder That's how, what you get. I wonder how old she looked then. Girl, I have to pull up a picture. Because she probably looked raggedy as hell. Girl, I haven't posted any pictures yet to the Facebook because I've been relatively lazy today. But let me pull up uh, Gertrude for you. 
I know this is just great for you guys who are listening, but I will give you you'll full. at least get to hear uh, Kayla's reaction to what Gertrude looks like. And then you can just look her up later yourself. Ugh. She looked up rough, right? And how, I mean, do you know how old she was in that picture? She was probably, you know, if she went, like, if Sylvia was killed in her 30s, she was in her, she had to have been in her 30s when she had that takeout, I'm sure. Homegirl looks like Because that's a like grandma. her mugshot. She's got, like, the chain and the, yeah. No, she looked like, like a, like a grandma with some serious issues. Yeah, and let me show you. This is Paula. This is her daughter. Her smug-ass little mugshot. Yeah, I'll she's posting, smiling in it. Yeah, she's smirking. I'll be posting all of this for you guys. Like, I kind of, like, this is going to be graphic, and I'm obviously not going to post it. If you want to see it, go look. But that is Sylvia. That's After they placed her on Yeah. She was, I think her death was mercy. It was, it's one of those cases. It's absolutely awful. She was, she was a very beautiful girl. It's just sad. And I hate people. Yeah, this is terrible. So, much like Gertrude, uh, Paula assumed a new identity herself after she was released on parole in 1972. She worked as an aide to, of all places, a school counselor for Mm -hmm. 14 years in the Iowa School District. She changed her name to Paula Pace and concealed the truth regarding her criminal history to the school district when applying for the position. Yeah, bitch, because you wouldn't be working there. Mm-hmm. She was fired in 2012 when the school discovered her true identity. Good on that school. Paula reportedly lives in a small town in Iowa. She is married and has two children. Her daughter that she had given birth to while being tried in 1966 was later adopted. I don't think this woman should have any position to have children at this point Mm-mm. myself. Mm-mm. Stephanie also assumed a new name and became a school teacher. She later married and has several children. Stephanie Circustad, as she goes by now, currently lives in Florida, and I probably butchered that last name. But that's okay. We've probably been butchering Banazuski this whole time, but that's the way it looks and sounds to me in my head. Now I can see like Stephanie being a school teacher like that to me kind of makes sense mm-hmm. but fuck Paula she should never have been able to do anything and I mean fucking do your background checks people my god yeah. don't just take someone's word for shit right the Marion County Department of Public Welfare placed Gertrude's other children Marie, Shirley and James Banaszewski in the care of separate foster families um, Dennis Jr. was later adopted, and his adoptive mother chose to name him Denny Lee White. He died on February 5th, 2012, at the age of 47. Richard, Coy, and John each served less than two years in the Indiana Reformatory before being granted parole on February 27, 1968. Richard died of lung cancer on January 2nd, 1972, so literally just like four years after being released, he died. Um, Coy remained in Indiana and never attempted to change his name. He was put in prison on and off again for several, you know, different criminal offenses over the next few years, and he ultimately died of a heart attack in Shelbyville, Indiana on June 23rd, 2007 at the age of 56. 
John lived in obscurity under the alias John Blake. He became a minister, hosting counseling sessions to the children of divorced parents. John issued a statement in which he acknowledged the fact that he and his co-defendants should have been sentenced to a much more severe term of punishment and described how he had become a decent and productive citizen. He died of diabetes in the Lancaster General Hospital on May 19, 2005 at the age of 52. Well, I agree with his statement that they all should have had more severe punishments. Yes. And he working for divorced children, that's a little strange. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like everybody wanted to do a better job at their life. Injury to person charges were brought against five other children that were known to have actively, physically, mentally, and emotionally tortured Sylvia, but these were later dropped. Jenny went on to marry an Indianapolis native and have two children. When she saw Gertrude's obituary in a newspaper, she clipped the section from the newspaper, mailed it to her mother with a note simply saying, Some good news. Damn old Gertrude died. Ha ha ha. I am happy about that. (laughs) Jenny emphasized no blame should be placed on her parents for placing her and Sylvia in Gertrude's care, stating all her parents had done was trust Gertrude's promise to actually care for them until they returned. Jenny died of a heart attack on June 23, 2004 at the age of 54. Elizabeth died in 1998 and Lester died in 2013. Which just makes it so, like, the whole thing bittersweet. Because even after everything was said and done, she basically watched her sister die. Like, she still didn't hold her parents responsible because they had no idea. And I'd say that's probably pretty tough to do because I think, you know, she probably could have had very much a grudge against her parents for letting Mm -hmm. that happen. But -hmm. she didn't. She chose to see a better outlook on it. Sylvia's case pushed Indiana's legislature to go further with mandatory reporting laws uh, when the federal government pushed states to define who exactly mandatory... (laughs) Oh, my God. I think you said mandatory the first time, too. Shut up. Sylvia's case pushed Indiana's legislature to go further with mandatory reporting laws when the federal government pushed states to define who mandatory reporters of child abuse should be most states went with professionals like teachers and doctors and, you know, such other professions. Indiana, in turn, quickly defined everyone as a mandatory reporter of child abuse, which is still enacted today. Anyone who suspects child abuse under any circumstance must make a report to law enforcement, and there are penalties, including jail time, for failure to report. So the nurse the neighbor, any of these other kids, they could be suffering like major consequences for not reporting. And that's what Sylvia's case has done. And that's, that's great. Awesome. That's amazing. That's awesome. I, I think everybody should be a mandatory reporter everywhere. I'm just going to say, like, if you see something going on that doesn't look right, it doesn't feel right, you got a gut feeling, say something. Exactly. Even if it is... It turns out to be nothing. At least you had the courage to say something and you could have saved somebody's life. Exactly. She could have had her life saved so many times. That's what I'm saying. There's so many people that let it go 
and in some type of way they killed her too. They killed her too. So Absolutely. The house at 3850 East New York Street stood vacant for many years after Sylvia's death. The property eventually became dilapidated and it was demolished on April 23, 2009 and replaced with a church parking lot. And in June 2001, a six-foot-tall granite memorial was formally dedicated to Sylvia's life and legacy in Willard Park in Indianapolis, where she used to play. This dedication was attended by several hundred people, including members of her family. The memorial is inscribed with these words, quote, This memorial is in memory of a young child who died a tragic death. As a result, laws changed and awareness increased. This is a commitment to our children that the Indianapolis Police Department is working to make this a safe city for our children. End quote. And I got chill bumps again. It's It really is such a bittersweet thing. And it's, it's sad in a way that things had to go that far for a law to actually change. Mm-hmm. But at least it changed. And now if you don't report something, you will suffer the penalties for not doing so. Mm-hmm. Uh, in notes, I think it's sad that it had to go to this length um, before anything was changed. But moving forward, it's good that the kids in Indianapolis and in Indiana have that in place for them. So that Absolutely. way, uh, nobody can go unpunished if one child suffers. Um, this was a real tough case to research. Um, I think the next case I do is not going to be so heavy because this was a sad one. Very sad, but it had a greater outcome for the good in the end. So, what did you guys think of this? It was rough. Let us know. Quite a rough one. Leave us a review. Comment. Subscribe. Report abuse. (laughs) Do all that stuff. Yeah, if you see something, say something. Don't let us a damn Facebook page of like, what would you do? Like, ugh. Just do the right thing. Be a decent human. Trust your gut. Don't die. Stay safe. See you guys next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Two Jane Does. I'm Emily. And I'm Kayla. Remember to tune in every Monday now at 8 p.m. as we dive into a new case. Please follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, and leave us a good review. Catch us on Facebook at Two Jane Does, where you can find updates on our episodes and links to our other social media accounts. If you have any cases that you want us to cover and go into detail with, you can leave us a message there.